number 10. We're going through the book of Philippi, Philippians, uh, verse by verse. And ten, uh, this morning, we're still in chapter 1, but we're at verses 19 and 20. Actually going to look at the end of verse 18. We have to connect what we looked at last week. The title of the message last Sunday was Gospel Insincerity, uh, in order to understand our text today. Uh, and the end of verse 18 is the phrase that connects the two passages. Uh, we're talking about the same thing. So let's back up. What's happening here is Paul is in prison. Uh, it's house arrest, so it wasn't a jail cell. It was more, would be similar to like our, um, when you're, you have an ankle bracelet today. Uh, they didn't have ankle bracelets, but he was definitely bound. Uh, he was definitely limited to uh, house arrest. He could not leave, uh, and he was awaiting a trial. He was awaiting a trial. In fact, um, that's what he was talking about last, last Sunday. It's what we're going to talk about today, and then going into the next couple of weeks, our, our sermons uh, in, this, in this text, he's talking about, he's anticipating his trial before a Roman tribunal. And there is a very, there's a very real possibility uh, that, um, first of all, that he is acquitted, and that's what he sees. When we look at today and then the next time we preach on this text, we're looking at when he talks about life and death, he's talking about the fact that he's, he's, he's got a trial coming up. And he very well could get the death sentence for preaching the gospel, which is being interpreted as insurrection to the Roman authorities. And Paul knows that. And that's what he's talking about. He is anticipating uh, that he might die. He's not sure whether he is going to live or die. Uh, but now back up now to what we spoke last week. He's, he's praising God. Paul was very gospel-centered. Everything to Paul, uh, obviously he was very Christ-centered. But because he was Christ-centered, he knew that his mission on this earth was to preach the gospel. He knew that there is a battle going on for the souls of men and women. And that if people do not hear the gospel, they're not going to be able to believe on the Savior. How shall they hear without a preacher? And so Paul was passionate about the gospel. And that's why he ended up in Rome under house arrest. But we just remember last week, he was rejoicing. In fact, if you look at Philippians chapter 1, he was rejoicing in verse 12. In this very unfortunate, what we would call unfortunate, un unfavorable, that was the message before that, uh, very unfavorable situation, he's in prison. So he's not able to preach the gospel right now. But he's, he's thankful because of his gospel-centeredness. Listen to what he said in verse 12. I would you should understand, brethren that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace. Uh, the palladium, is, I think, is the, is the Greek word. It's talking about um, not necessarily a Roman palace, but uh, among the authority, the guard. It's believed the royal guard is that term. So that uh, many, or manifest in all the palace, and in all other places, verse 14, 
And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So people, people that are on Paul's side, his brothers and sisters in Christ that are sympathetic and that are right there cheering him on, uh, are seeing his willingness to suffer for preaching the gospel. Here's a guy that loves people, wants to see them saved, and he ends up suffering for it. But he is not daunted in the least bit. And you know what? That inspires every single one of his cheerleaders, the people that are on board with him. But it didn't just inspire his cheerleaders. It also inspired his naysayers. Look what he says in verse 14. And many of the brethren in the Lord waxing confident by my bonds are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife. What? And some of goodwill. Those are the ones he was talking about. It's like, okay, Paul, what do you mean some preach Christ of envy and strife? And that's where he mentions, he's clarifying in verse 16. The one preach Christ of contention. Those are the ones that are preaching the gospel of envy and strife. In other words, their motives are not right. They're not interested in souls being saved. Their biggest passion is making things hard for Paul. And for some reason, uh, most people think that these are people that were kind of waiting in the background because Paul definitely had major influence in the lives of the believers in Rome. And that's where Paul's at, writing to Philippi. And so there were people that, were, that had ulterior motives that kind of like, remember Simon, the sorcerer, saw Peter healing, uh, given the, when the gift of the Holy Spirit, those things were happening. And he said, I want to buy that. And you remember that? Well, it's, I think it's kind of like this where, you know, they were in the background. They were seeing what Paul was doing and they wanted the attention that Paul seemed to get. They wanted to have the influence, but they were like held back. And now all of a sudden Paul's in prison and now they're free and they can use it to their advantage to get one up on Paul. And many believe that that's the envy and the strife. And so they are not preaching Christ sincerely. Verse 16, uh, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. So these are the people that they weren't preaching because they cared about people. They were preaching the right message. Remember that? It was the gospel. Unlike the other people that opposed Paul, the Judaizers, these were people that were preaching the same gospel. But they weren't doing it because they cared about souls. They were doing it in spite. And then he says this in verse 18. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice. That was last week. And now he says this, Yea, and will rejoice. And this moves us into verses 19 and 20. He's talking about, he's praising God for what has happened and how it has led to the furtherance of the gospel. And he is rejoicing. But, and now remember now, the whole theme of what's going on is Paul is getting ready for a trial. He's going to stand before a Roman tribunal. His very life hangs in the balance. And 
And he's thinking of that because he's in prison. He's talking about his imprisonment, his chains. And, and he's talking about how he's rejoicing at what's already happened up to this point. Wow, look at this. People are hearing the gospel left and right. Because the ones that are my cheerleaders are, you know, they're being inspired. And then there's the others that aren't, you know, they're doing it to spite me. But at least the gospel is being preached. And Paul's praising the Lord for that. And so up to this point, up to the very end of verse 18, he is rejoicing in what's happening up to this point. But now if you look at verse 18, he says, Yea, and will rejoice. Now he's starting to move forward, and he's starting to think about the trial that is ahead. And he says this in verse 19, For I know, that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. It's a peculiar statement. And that has caused some consternation for people. Wait a minute, Paul. It's going to turn to your salvation? It, was Paul not saved? What's he talking about? It's going to turn to my salvation. I thought Paul was already saved. I thought that's... That was the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 by which he was already saved and now he's preaching so that other people could be saved. What's he mean by wherein, uh, again, this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ? Here's the point. Every time you see in your New Testament the word salvation doesn't always mean he's talking about our being washed in the blood, born again, becoming a Christian, which is salvation, right? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For by grace are you saved by faith, and that not of yourself is a gift of God. So multitudes of times, when the Bible talks about salvation, it's talking about that point, remember John five twenty four, where we hear the word, and we believe on him that sent us, and we have everlasting life, and at that moment are passed from death unto life. That's, that's a salvation where when you see the word salvation, most of the time, depending on the context, you always have to look at the context. That's the deliverance that's being talked about. You hear that? The word salvation means deliverance. And of course, is there a greater deliverance than that? Nope. The fact that you and I, if you've been born again, you've been delivered, you've been, you, the crimes, your, your and my moral crimes against God have been pardoned, washed in the blood. Oh, never get over it. And you and I will have all eternity to bask in the fact that we are undeserved sinners on our way to heaven. I'll never get over it. Because I'll never be worthy of it. And yet, and, and neither will you. No offense. No offense. None of us. But this word salvation sometimes simply means to be delivered from, it could be from bad circumstances. It could be delivered, and sometimes it does mean delivered from physical death. Now when you realize the context, and here's the key. I have studied this text so many times and never realized that what believers have found long before me that have studied the scriptures and, and been more saturated 
in the Scriptures than I am. And by the way, um, Paul was saturated in the Scriptures. And by that, when you talk about that, we're talking about the Old Testament, right? Because he would be involved in the the production of the New Testament. Uh, But he did not have the New Testament memorized or quoted. He He was fully ingrained in the Old Testament. That was the Scriptures of his day. And what we find here that I did not know, and, and let me read this from a couple of theological sources. Paul uses a literary phenomenon. In other words, Paul's doing something in this text that I never picked up before. And it's only observable when you realize somebody that is saturated in Scripture. And here's, here's the statement. Paul uses a literary phenomenon that theologians call intertextuality. Not intersectionality. Very different. Intersectionality is a, uh, this, a, a kind of a more recent phenomena that uh, is not based in Scripture. And it, it's uh, a whole part of critical race theory. So we're going to move away from that because that's not what's happening. Intertextuality. And here's how it's explained. Um, it is the conscious conscious embedding of fragments of an earlier text into a later one. Paul's spiritual life and theology are thoroughly saturated in the Old Testament. See, Paul, as a religious Jew, a Pharisee, he had God's word oozing out of every pore. And then when he got saved, that all his knowledge and all the cramming of scriptures uh, of the Tanakh and the Old Testament in his head, then became a tool, because it was up in his mind, then it became a tool that God used as he began to receive the gospel and preach the gospel. Charles Spurgeon once made this statement about John Bunyan. You ever heard of Pilgrim's Progress? Pilgrim's Progress was a, a work that was written by John Bunyan uh, when he was in prison. He was a Baptist preacher, uh, and um, he was imprisoned for preaching the gospel. And while he was in prison, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, which is a, an, a, a, it is a um, allegory. Thank you very much. You've heard me stumble on that word before. That's why she knew. Uh, it is an allegory of a young man named Christian, another friend called Evangelist, and they're on their way to the celestial city. And so it's just kind of a cute story about men that are on their way and they come across all these people, all these circumstances, and it's an allegory of the Christian life. And it, if you, I remember the first time I read it, it is saturated in scriptures. John Bunyan was a man of God that knew the book. And when he was in prison, I believe personally, from what I've read about him and I think that this writing of this allegory was therapy for him. And, and, and here's, what, here's what Spurgeon said about Bunyan. And I love this statement. He said, if you prick Bunyan, he bleeds Bible. I love that. Oh, I'd love if someone said, if you prick that guy, he just bleeds Bible. I mean, that's, that's awesome. Now I want to tell you something. I think Paul, if you pricked Paul, he would bleed Bible. I mean, he just, he, you know how, in fact, Paul, in in the New Testament, Paul would tell the uh, Colossians, in Colossians 3.16, 
He would challenge them. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now remember the word of Christ, and it would become um, not just his words, like the red letter edition, what, what he said, but even the words that his followers taught from his instruction. So you and I are challenged, folks. We need to we need to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Are you doing that? Are you reading the Bible? Are you trying to digest parts of it? Memorizing, you know, there's so many different things we deal with on a day-to-day basis. And there's so many different scriptures that could help us if we would only take it from the page, get it in our brain, so that when we're out and apart somewhere and in life, and we don't have access to look something up, we can just pull it out in our minds. So I want to encourage you to start digging into your Bible and finding passages that deal with the things you're struggling with. Are you an anxious person? Oh, the Bible says so much about anxiety. You can memorize. Philippians chapter 4, there's verses in there which would help you. Whatever, anger. You have an anger problem? There are so many scriptures that you've got to memorize them and they'll help you. You have a lust problem? You have a coveting problem? Whatever your problem is, there's so many scriptures. And I'll even help you to find some uh, that, that would help you to memorize them so that the word of Christ dwells in you richly. Now here's the thing. The word of God dwelt in Paul richly. So much so that as God's people down through the last couple centuries have have read Paul's writings, and they have been really acquainted with the Old Testament, there have been so many that have come to this passage of Philippians. And I never picked up on it because I didn't have Job 3.16 memorized. And I didn't have Psalm 34 and 35 memorized. Shame on me, right? You know, But there were people that knew. And so many down through the ages have come to this and they're like, Oh, clearly, Paul is, and, and here's inner, inner textuality, um, is explained this way. Paul not only quotes the Old Testament, but also at times borrows or echoes the language in settings of specific Old Testament passages and refits them into his own setting. I want to read that again, because that's what we're supposed to be doing. In fact, Paul would write this to the Romans. He said, what things were written aforetime in the past? That would include Job 3. That would include Psalm 34 and 35. What things were written aforetime were just written for them and to be left alone? No. They were written for our learning that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, those Old Testament Scriptures, might have hope. Why would Job's complaining to God because of his circumstances have anything to do with me? Why would David's pleas to God in Psalm 34 and 35 as a poor man, why would, you know, because of his circumstances, he's going through a real hard time, why would those prayers have anything to do with me? And that goes back to this. Again, what is, what is uh, intertextuality? Paul not only quotes the Old Testament, but also at times 
borrows or echoes the language and settings of specific Old Testament passages and refits them into his own setting. Now that's up our alley today. There are so many people today that are all about repurposing. Reduce, reuse, recycle, right? It's like the mantra of the day. And this is, this is, recy- this is repurposing. And it's a beautiful thing because what it is, is Paul was so thoroughly saturated with the Old Testament that he incorporated it. Now, he was not taking it out of context. He understood that Job 3.16 was Job's complaint to God because of what happened to Job. But he repurposed it. He borrowed the terminology. And in the setting, he understood the setting. But as he's reading it, he thought, you know what? I can find some help from this. The things that Job was saying to God, the things that David was saying to God, I know they were talking to God regarding their own situation. But man, there's some real application here in my life right now. That's what Paul meant when the things that were written aforetime were written for our learning. You need to read your Old Testament. If you've ever bought into something, once in a while I run across a Christian, they're like, oh, well, the New Testament is for us. Old Testament, that's all where, that's for the Hebrews, that's for the Jews, that's not for us. Wrong. The, the Old Testament is just, it, it's food for us. It's food for us. And it was food for Paul. And so Paul repurposed. And actually, what he is coming out with now is his own language, his own experience. But it is some of these phrases that we find in the Old Testament that clearly was on Paul's mind. And in order to understand what Paul, how he's using this, we have to understand that. So real quickly, as we jump in, um, first of all, Paul is re- referencing, most believe, Job 3.16. And in that text, in fact, let's just jump right in here before we get to the, um, the, the Psalm 1. In Job 3.16, and by the way, understand that um, Paul knew his Old Testament, but the Bible that was being used, and remember, they didn't have a New Testament. The, um, the New Testament was going to come out in the common language, koinonia. Uh, and so the New Testament, Paul would be part of that, was in koine Greek. That was the common tongue. There was classical Greek for the higher-ups, but God gave the New Testament in the common tongue. And that common tongue was Greek. And so most of the time when, when you're seeing the New Testament writers quoting from the Old Testament, and you go back and look, it wasn't from the Hebrew. It wasn't from the King James. It was uh, from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. And so... Clearly, when Paul is re- uh, referring, um, he, when he, especially in this one, when he goes to, he's quoting from Job 3.16 from the Greek tr- translation. And he's using, it's, he's taking it verbatim. And we find it here in, um, in verse 4. So again, verse 18, Yea, uh, and I will rejoice. He's looking ahead. He's now going to talk about the upcoming trial. And what his expectations are. And by the way, uh, the title of the message today is Certainty for the Future. 
Get that, hon, not of the future, for the future. I changed it. Sorry. She's shaking her head. How dare you change the title? Um, so it's certainty for the future. Uh, because Paul may be facing his own demise. And in, in the next couple of weeks, when we get back to this, he's talking about uh, he has a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is a likelihood. And for him, he's like, that'd be far better. But he said, but to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. So he's facing, I'm either going to be acquitted or I'm going to be condemned to die. And he's facing these two realities. And he's, he's confident. And you and I, we don't know what the future is. Things can all of a sudden turn upside down in this country or in your life. Your whole world can go topsy-turvy. I'm sorry, ladies from Ecuador. I don't know what topsy-turvy is in Spanish. Do you ever hear of topsy-turvy? Upside down. down, Messed all up. I'm sorry. I'm so conscious now of the different languages we have. And I'm really working on reaching all of you. I can only say one word in in Liberian, in in Basa. So I've got so far to go. And I don't know any Chinese words yet. I'm sorry. Anyway, the the bottom line is, why was it? I said topsy-turvy. Why did I say topsy-turvy? Oh, yes, thank you. Your world could be upside down. And you don't know about the future. And you and I can have confidence in that. So, the Septuagint, the wording of Job 3.16 is very similar. Clearly, Paul was quoting from that, had this at least in his mind, and was applying it to himself. He says, For I know that this shall turn to my salvation. He's not talking about being saved by faith. He had already taken care of that. He's talking about deliverance. He's also talking about vindication, because that's what Job was talking about. Uh, we're going to have to, in fact, we're going to, let me just focus on this. We'll pick up with this actual message when I come back. But here's the bottom line. Let's talk about what Job was talking about, Job 3.16. Job, um, as you know, Job was getting counsel from his friends. Remember that? And they were, in fact, he, he, he summarized what a blessing they were when he said, miserable counselors are you all. That's what he said. Uh, you know, they were basically, they were so convinced. Listen, Job, if you were walking with the Lord and things were right in your life, you wouldn't be having problems. Boy, what a messed up philosophy. If you go through trials and you have some well-meaning Christian come along and say, all right, buddy, time to fess up, you know, maybe turn around and run as fast as you can. Say goodbye, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu. You know, those were Job's friends. They were miserable comforters because they were convinced I mean, how would you like to have lost your, all your, your children, your possessions, and your health in one day? You lost it all. And you got some buddies coming along. And they're not there to just... Well, the first... It says initially they just sat there with their mouths shut. God bless friends like that. And then they opened their big mouths. And they basically said, Job, what'd you do wrong? Come on, buddy fess up you must have done something wrong because if you know good people don't suffer things don't go wrong for good people if you were walking with the lord 
this wouldn't be happening. And my, how wrong they were. And Job knew it. Now, Job would never have claimed to be perfect. But he knew he was right with God. He knew it. Again, he was aware of his own failures. In fact, he would, he would be doing some deep soul searching through this whole thing. But he just, you know, here they are accusing him. And he wanted to be vindicated. You know, here he is getting these accusations. And so the whole time in the book of Job, he just wants an audience before God so he can be vindicated. And so when he says, basically in the Hebrew, this, uh, and this shall turn to me for salvation. He's, he uses the phrase, turn to me. The King James, it says, uh, shall be, and that's in italics. But the, the Greek translation that, that, um, that Paul was writing from here would have been that, the idea of turn to. And this is what Paul's after, is that Paul just wanted, um, he wanted to be vindicated. He's being imprisoned. He's going to have a trial. He doesn't know the outcome. In fact, that wasn't the big thing for the outcome. He just wanted God to be glorified. We're going to talk about that next time. Um, that uh, Verse 20 is awesome. According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all confidence, as always, so now also, Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life, that was if he was acquitted, or by death, that was if he was condemned to die. And he just, he wanted God to be glorified. And so right here, he is relating clearly to Job and Job's crying out to God, I just want to be vindicated. So when he says, turn to my salvation, his deliverance, that's primarily what we, see, we think he's talking about there is, is his vindication, deliverance. By the way, as we're going to see, he is also confident based on what he thinks, you know, he's he would rather die. He's ready to meet the Lord. But he was pretty convinced, and this would be part of his confidence, that God was going to spare his life because it was more needful for the Philippians and the believers of that day for Paul to remain alive and minister to them. And he would say that. I close with this. I love, and if, you're in, if you ever go in the back, You'll see there's a new poster that we put up with the world map. And we put this one up before. Uh, this is an updated one from, from Voice of the Martyrs. And it is a challenge to pray for the persecuted believers across the world. And I want to tell you, uh, there are believers being persecuted. There are believers being martyred. We, in our ivory palace of America right now, Sometimes thinking that other believers right now are suffering for their faith, we can't comprehend it. And yet multitudes are. And I encourage you to go back and look at that map. Find out what countries are where there's severe persecution. But many years ago, in fact, many believe that this was, um, this was definitely in the 4th century, 328 A.D. to 378 A.D. was a Roman emperor named Valens. He was actually a co-emperor. His brother was older than him, uh, became emperor, and then made his younger brother uh, a part. You know, you, you get the east half, I'll get the west half. I forget which one. So they, they each took a half of the Roman Empire. And under Valens, 
which would have been, he, he was king for 14 years before he was murdered or killed in battle in 378. And there was a Christian, uh, a man by the name of Eusebius, who was a church father, who was a believer. And Valens threatened him with several things for preaching the gospel. He said, you stop preaching the gospel or we are going to confiscate all your belongings. We are going to torture you. We are going to banish you. We may even kill you. That's a serious threat, isn't it? Was Eusebius daunted by that? Not at all. Listen to what he said, and I love this. He said, He needs not fear confiscation who has nothing to lose, nor banishment to whom heaven is his country, nor torments when his body can be destroyed at one blow, nor death, which is the only way to set him at liberty from sin and sorrow. You know, talk about something falling out for the furtherance of the gospel. You know how Paul's like, oh man, I'm imprisoned. This is not good. But look what happened because of it. Here, I love this because Eusebius is, he's getting threatened. You better stop preaching the gospel or we're going to confiscate all your stuff. We're going to torture you. We're going to banish you. We're going to kill you. And he's like, so? <laughs> you know, that's good. You know, in light of the fact that he was living for eternity, none of those things daunted him. And folks, that's exactly where Paul is at. Paul is facing possible death he doesn't know, but as we're going to see in the weeks ahead, the months ahead, he is, he's not daunted by it. He just wants to fight a good fight, and he wants God to be glorified in his body, whether it means he's acquitted or whether it means he is killed. He just wants the gospel to go forth. May that be our motive. We don't know what's ahead. You don't know what's ahead in your life. It's okay. You and I, who follow Christ, we can have certainty for the future. Think about it. What, what, what bad thing could happen to you that, that wasn't threatened to Eusebius? And he turned it around. Because for us, as Paul will say, for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's, if you're a born-again believer, that's your lot. So we should be leaving here kicking our heels high. Because what do we have to be afraid of? No matter how things turn out, you and I are on our way to heaven. Glory to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for, for this text and some of the new things I'm learning. And thank you for Paul being so saturated with Scripture that I missed it. And uh, Lord, I just pray that you would help us to understand what Paul's conveying. That we would also have confidence for our future that uh, we would not uh, take thought for our life, what shall be on the morrow. Help us to have the same attitude as Paul so that we can have confidence moving forward no matter what. And Father, for those that are not saved, that have not had their sins, their crimes, moral crimes against their holy creator, they've not had them, had them expunged through your sacrificial gift of Jesus Christ, help them to understand what they need to do uh, to have their sins forgiven and have their names written in the book of life. And we ask your blessing uh, on the word. And we thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.
All right, let's take our hymn books out. Let's all stand. And we are going to turn to hymn 623. Uh, in fact, as we talked about being this idea of having our sins ex-